Digital Gonzo, episode 86, dated Thursday the 5th of July 2012, Batman Hush. This is the sixth of eleven Batman reviews for Digital Gonzo on the road to the Dark Knight Rises. We've covered the live-action films of the 90s, the Adam West series and film, and the animated series and Mask of the Phantasm. Later this week, we have a triple bill of animated films in episode 87. And next week, we're covering both Arkham games. Then, for our epic conclusion, we delve into the Dark Knight trilogy. However, tonight we are looking at something I initially hadn't planned on. I figured if we were going to talk about the comics, then that could be a whole other series of Gonzo shows, which I simply don't have time for. So as a new addition to this series, I wanted to cover my favourite. It's a perfect entry point if you want to start reading Batman, or if you just want to read a single, well-executed story. It's a book that I sincerely hope will one day get the DC animated treatment, much like Year One, Under the Red Hood, Public Enemies, and The Dark Knight Returns. Joining me in the Batcave again are Jerome McIntosh and Paul Gibson of Gonzo Planet. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Jerome, did you enjoy your weekly reprieve? <laughs> uh, it was good to get away from that movie. Did, you were stuck at work, weren't you? Yeah. I think that was better. I think it was better. <laughs> <laughs> Hush was a 12-issue story arc published in Batman number 608 to 619 over a year between 2002 and 2003. It was written by Jeff Loeb, who also penned The Long Halloween, and the artist by Jim Lee, who worked on the X-Men reboot in 1990, the recent Justice League reboot, and whose work was the basis of a character design in the recent DC Universe Online. Jim Lee is who you go to if you want established characters to look both fresh and classic. Thus, his appointment on Hush is perfect. Inking was done by Scott Williams and colour by Alex Sinclair, neither of which can be underestimated because without them, all we get are Jim Lee's pencil sketches. This story served as a way to get new readers into Batman and reinvigorate old fans by going back to basics on the bat. It had a similar flavour to the Arkham games in that it feels like a more muscular version of the animated series. See how I didn't say darker or grittier? In this show, we will detail the characters involved and what they mean to Batman and what is achieved by the book and, of course, its few flaws. Before we start, I got an email this morning from a new listener named David Hartrick. He found Gonzo Planet through Gameburst. See, I knew they were useful for something. And works as a freelance football writer and author. Some time ago, he wrote an article on Hush for a popular lifestyle website, but in due course, it never got published. He provided the whole article for me, and I'm going to read it out for you now, because it states in more elegant terms than I can muster the importance of this story. So this is all by David Hartrick. Thank you, David. The quintessential modern era love letter to the world Bob Kane created, Loeb's perfectly paced writing and Lee's beautiful artwork speak to anyone who has ever held even a passing interest in Gotham. 
The casual observer was raised on the juxtaposition of the awful films of the 90s against the near perfection of the animated series. For this audience, there are familiar cornerstones of the Bat universe, the usual cast of characters who speak in the voices they have come to know. Lee draws in a way familiar to all of us, but brings a new energy to the layers of history laced into each and every member of the cast. This is the Joker in a fashion we all recognise. This is also very much Jim Lee's Joker with Jeff Loeb's voice. There is enough of the cosily familiar to make this a Batman tale accessible to those not versed in years of continuity. For the devotees like myself, the reader who pours over every panel and knows when a step is misplaced, there are moments in the story that feel just for us. When Batman takes the kryptonite ring from his utility belt, we can remember when Superman gave him that very object in case he needed to be stopped. Uh, has anyone seen Justice League Doom, the recent animated movie? Yeah. Not yet, no. It's at the end of that. Yeah. So that's if, if, if that's referenced in Hush. So if you've seen Doom, then that, that makes a callback. Forgive me, for I am getting ahead of myself. Let's begin where we always must, the start. And with Jeff Loeb, a writer in the time of Hush's conception, at the very top of his comics game. Starting out in television and film, Loeb's work was as diverse as contributing to the scripts of Teen Wolf and sequel Teen Wolf 2. I don't even think they had a script of Teen Wolf 2. It was just the same thing. And the Arnie starring Commando. <laughs> in later life, he would contribute to long-running television series Lost and Heroes. And today, he is the head of Marvel Comics' growing television output. It's been rumoured that Jeff Loeb is the man who might or might not be cancelling Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes. If he does, he may be on my shit list for all time, but at least he did hush. His work in comics, however, started with a slow burn, his career only really taking off in the mid-90s with his first attempt at a Bat-universe-spanning tale, The Long Halloween, and its sequel, Dark Victory. These were similar in scale to Hush, but took place in Batman's early career, so straight after year one. While on the face of it the two stories have very little in common, scratch the surface and there is groundwork in both that is seen through in Hush's arc. Both attempt to look at Gotham with a wide-angle lens, weaving multiple strands throughout one central plot thread. Both look to use the full cast of Bat family members and villains. But by the time we reach the Hush saga, Loeb has learned not to make things feel quite as forced. Tellingly, both go for a villain who is not supernatural. Loeb's best work always comes when he steers clear of the boogeyman and the holiday killer whose identity I won't reveal for fear of spoiling it for some, and Hush himself. There is very much a human behind the mask. This is man against man, and while Hush does briefly pit Batman against Superman, the figure on the other side of the chessboard throughout is actually Batman and Bruce Wayne's equal. Jim Lee, however, had entered the comics world with a wallop, a crash and a bang, right from the off. His art came to define a generation in the 90s, while slightly blocky and highly detailed, it still retained a human quality some steered clear of. Lee rooted his characters in the physics of the real world, and having... Have you seen the tits on these women? <laughs> and having worked his way through the Marvel Universe and then set up his own successful comics line, Lee was enticed to DC by the prospect of moving back to Lee the artist and away from Lee the businessman. In the Absolute Edition, which I have, you get a real sense of Lee's approach to illustrating Hush. Each panel has been done with love and layered with meanings and homage. The scattering of letter V's throughout are in tribute to his wife, whose maiden name also crops up. Several guards and policemen bear names of friends and long-term collaborators. 
narrators. But there's another layer of tribute, a final act of the love letter, if you will. Lee takes the world of Batman and comics in general and dedicates backgrounds and landscapes to echoes of the past. If you look hard enough at the artwork, you'll see various creators and important figures from Batman's past referenced. You'll find every Batmobile in a splash page of the cave. That's, this is insane, especially if you've got the Absolute Edition. It just folds out and out and out and out. And Batman says, we'll take the car. And Nightwing says, which one? And it's all of them. Yeah, that one's a great theme. <laughs> you will find faces of everyone from Loeb himself to the late, great Archie Goodwin. Hell, you'll even see the Marvel Universe's long-dead Jean Grey's tombstone in one cemetery scene. This is an artist knowing he is drawing something definitive, something for the ages. And here we are, back at the beginning, with that love letter again. I will declare my hand here and tell you two things. Firstly, I'm a Batman Uber fan. Where some ask, what would Jesus do? I always look at the cape and cowl for my answer. I can say without a trace of arrogance that I know Batman. I have immersed myself in his world for two decades, and I've read beyond that timescale. I have touched base, at the very least, with every significant moment of his career, and most I have studied. In short, I know good bat from bad bat. Okay, so the fact that he sent us this email means we're on the right track, lads. Just keep doing <laughs> Secondly, I will simply say this. Out of my collection, there are only two story arcs I have bought more than once. The first is the Nightfall Saga. Batman's introduction to Bane in the early 90s and I had to buy later collected editions as my earlier books were in such a mess they became unreadable. The second arc is Hush. I have the original monthly comics, the two trade volumes of said issues collected, the recent Hush unwrapped hardcover featuring just Jim Lee's pencil work, the iPad digital editions of each monthly comic, and Pride of Place sits the aforementioned oversized Absolute Edition which cost me a small fortune of which I regret not a penny. In short, Hush is a love letter to me. A swirling epic whodunit, written and drawn by people looking to the past to represent the present in a definitive way. It isn't a Batman story. This is one of the Batman stories. I will say right now, if you haven't read Hush, if you don't mind some spoilers, we're going to keep the identity of Hush and a couple of extra things that are in the very last issue to the back end, and we'll keep that as just... We won't go into that spoiler territory, but we're going to pretty much talk through everything else in issues 1 through 11 of this. So my main advice would be go read this now. If you don't want to go and read it, listen on, but you're going to get a few things spoiled for you. But we'll keep the big bad for you if you want to read it. Gotham City Shipyard, almost midnight. I have 1 minute and 13 seconds left. After that, no time to pick the lock. The acid is faster, but unpredictable. Had to risk it. If I don't find the hostage before he gets back. The FBI and DEO cut the power. That will either make my job harder or easier. I'll know in the next few seconds. Nails Nathan, former CIA op. Right-handed. <laughs> the poison in the tips of my batarangs will go to work in his hand, his arm, and then his head. Tommy Harper. Gunrunner for the IRA. He has a metal plate in his skull, which makes him susceptible to vertigo if it's hit with anything magnetic. Carlos Valdez, Chilean mercenary. He likes to fight in close because of his size. Spider Hancock, Gotham City muscle. I broke two of his ribs three nights ago. They won't heal soon. I have to make it clear to Hancock that I don't have time for a long discussion. Where is the boy? I swear I don't know. You're lying. Fear is an excellent motivator. Someone
someone spent a lot of money assembling this crew. Batman. Stay down on the floor and cover your ears. But as Bruce Wayne will attest, you have to spend money to make money. I'm gonna get you out of here. Thirty-seven seconds left. The boy is trembling. Not much older than I was when... He's probably just as terrified of me as of what's happening. It makes me think about Clark and how he'd handle the situation. Not just the bending steel and flying out. Clark could smile, that Boy Scout thing, and then say something homespun to put the boy at ease. But the boy doesn't have Clark, he has me. And in Gotham City, it's better that way. You shouldn't have come here! This doesn't involve you! So the story starts with Batman trying to save a kidnapped child from Killer Croc. You get inside his head. The way he's portrayed is exactly how he fights in Arkham City and Arkham Asylum. Um, And also it's kind of the same way that Sherlock Holmes fights, uh, in that he knows exactly where to punch each guy, where to hit them, what to do with them very quickly to take them out. Yeah, It's pretty much the proto-version of the detective vision from the games. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like the Terminator yeah the way it's drawn because you get the screen with the targets and analysis and all that sort of stuff on there it's, it's, it's just a fascinating way to start off immediately with your character so like the first main character is Batman and he's, he's huge and he's got massive boots and he's, he's drawn in the way that Jim Lee always used to draw Wolverine in the same way like he's ripping out of the page Batman is glorious the way that it's drawn here to me, this is what the, definitively when I think of Batman, I think of this image, this artwork. Yeah, it's one of the ones that springs to mind for me. The other one we'll probably mention next week: the Mazzucchelli for Year One. Oh, for Year One. Oh, okay. yeah. oh yeah, that's yeah. it. That's for Sunday. Okay, yeah, no. Yeah. Okay. The whole hostage scene on the tanker. It pretty much tells you everything in that section that you need to know about Batman. Mm. Absolutely everything, because there's the gadgets. There's the detective vision, the planning, the way he fights. How incredibly cold and dedicated he is. And the the judging and analysing absolutely everything. It's all in that one scene. The sheer efficiency that is Batman, essentially. Mm. In many ways, Batman is something of a Mary Sue character. He's Especially when it comes to who could win in a fight between Batman and so-and-so. It's always Batman, because he's always so clever, and he's always working everything out. But it's, it's trying to sort of show you, okay, if such a person did exist, how would their mind work? And credit to Jeff Loeb, I believe it. Yeah. Cut to Killer Croc, who uh, takes on Batman, looking remarkably like the Lizard, especially from the um, <laughs> uh, Amazing Spider-Man. The thing with Croc in this one is that his condition is deteriorating, is becoming less and less human, which is distressing to him. It looks very Venom-like in a lot of the artwork as well. 
But in this, he's a straight-up goon, someone visually stunning for Batman to clash with first before we get to the real deal. And uh, almost immediately, Catwoman appears. Batman saves the kid, and she steals the loot for the ransom, and goes off, and Batman chases her, and it's, you know, straight away you've got this Arkham City style. I'm going to keep comparing it to Arkham City, because it feels like it in, in many ways, hence the soundtrack. So he's chasing Catwoman, and I'm going to say right now, I don't really get the appeal of Catwoman ever anywhere uh, in in cat catman returns in batman returns <laughs> in batman returns she's an interesting character psychologically because she's clearly snapped in this and in every other depiction i've seen of her she's so cool with herself and comfortable with who she is and uh, maybe it's slightly less so in the animated series but th- there's no weakness to catwoman there's no frailty and she's boring she's just this really gorgeous lithe chick in a cat suit and often with horrible stiletto heels not here but often I think that's probably fair I'm just trying to think of a version where she wasn't like that I recently read some of the new 52 of Catwoman's mm-hmm. and it sort of portrayed her she may, she's comfortable with being Catwoman but she does have this weakness because during it, she has friends that she goes to every now and again. One, one of the things she does actually ends up getting her friends killed. And right. it shows like one of her weaknesses is she has these few ties. And very much like how Bruce reacts, she goes on quite a tirade when one of her friends is hurt by someone else. The, the two things that they keep having to balance with her character is that she is very curious like a cat, but also like a cat, she always seems to land on her feet. So there's never any real sense of tension with her. Mm. She's, she's always so, you know, snappy with the, uh, the lines, especially in uh, Arkham City. That There doesn't seem to be that much character there. I, I guess we could talk about this later, but the point is she's a very prevalent character in this book. And Batman actually starts to um, develop a romantic relationship with her which I think was controversial with many fans but it makes perfect sense considering that she is able to keep a pace with him yeah I think she's too in control and it's, it makes Batman ever the more compelling throughout Hush the less in control he becomes having said that it's ironic that I'm talking about her being in control she is at this point being controlled by Poison Ivy yeah and she says later on that uh, Ivy was getting her to do things that she... Huh, and they're quite coy about this. Do things that she might have had a natural proclivity towards anyway. She means stealing jewels, kids. Yeah. Um, <laughs> nothing else. <laughs> but ultimately, they, they, she was stealing against her will, and Ivy is actually controlling her. The problem is, she looks like she's doing that anyway. Yeah. It's, it's just the sort of thing that she would do typically. Yeah. But I do like her costume here. I think this was the retcon of it, and uh, it's the one with the goggles. And uh, When it comes down to it, we will have our final definitive Catwoman discussion during the Dark Knight Rises show, because it is up to Christopher Nolan to make her character interesting. Yep. Very true. Yeah. Um, Oracle is briefly uh, mentioned here, and she's uh, if you've played the Arkham game, she's with you all the time. She's the girl talking into your ear. I don't know if everyone knows this. She's Batgirl. She's Barbara Gordon. She's who Alicia Silverstone was sort of playing in Batman and Robin. Mm-hmm. Um, something very, very important about Oracle, and this is why she's the opposite of Catwoman, Joker shot her in the spine to get to Commissioner Gordon to drive him insane in an Alan Moore book called The Killing Joke. 
and it, he almost succeeded and it was a life ruining situation for Barbara but she had to pull herself together and work out what to do with her mind being robbed of her the, the, the use of her legs and her athletic ability and everything she loved about being Batgirl and that makes her a far more fascinating character than Catwoman I love Oracle yeah yeah and that is a fantastic, if very dark, story. Yeah, very tragic. The Killing Joke, I definitely would recommend. It's 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 genuinely horrible, and the sort of thing they could never get into the animated series. You can't. I mean, the adaptation of it would be so loose; it wouldn't even be the same story. No, I was listening to an interview with Mark Hamill, and that is the one he wants to do. Is uh, the Killing uh, Joke? Was that I, uh, Kevin Smith's Modcast once? It was, yeah. Fantastic two podcasts. But he was talking about how he wants to do the killing joke, if not as animated, then possibly as a radio play type audiobook. You know, I almost think that the Mark Hamill Joker is too nice. Because um, earlier today, uh, I, I showed Lyra a bit of. Oh, that was it, yeah. Um, you know the Legends of the Dark Knight episode where um, it's got the. Was it the 40s or 50s version of Joker in yeah. there? Yeah. Um, and she said, where's the nice Joker? I said, there <laughs> is no nice Joker, Lyra. And she went, yes, there is. There's something appealing about his version of Joker, at least in the animated series, even if he is scary as all hell. Yeah, he did do the version for the games, though, as well, hmm. which was a darker take on that. Significantly darker, but you're still, he's the guy you're, you're with. Joker is the guy you don't even love to hate him you just love the fact that he's around even if he does terrible things killing joke he goes beyond the line he goes way over it you can't get with a joker who does that and it should I mean, frankly I think the John I really like John DiMaggio's performance as him in uh, Red Hood I've seen it three times now and I'm liking it more and more each time I actually think uh, DiMaggio despite the fact that Mark Hamill wants to do it would be better for that joker yeah, possibly. Um, we also get a brief uh, cameo from Huntress. I, I don't know why. Maybe just because Jim Lee wanted to draw a really hot, gorgeous girl uh, in the skin-tight suit. Because that roughly all you get on Huntress in this. There's, there's actually a shade later on where she appears to be fighting another version of herself. It's because she's the second Huntress. The first one, I think, was like... Wasn't it like Bruce and Catwoman's daughter from another dimension? And this is actually a different... Huntress is a monster's daughter. She's the same Huntress that we saw in Justice League Unlimited, if you've seen that. I know next to nothing about Huntress. Mm. So and you don't learn anything in this book, so she's no, kind not of really. a useless cameo. <laughs> um, but yeah, she turns up uh, just as a... Ex pursuing Catwoman, Batman's line is cut. He falls many stories, fracturing his skull and injuring himself badly. Huntress saves him from various thugs. Um... It's significant that Batman's line is cut. He was at that point being herded and had his traversal sabotaged by an as-yet-unknown assailant, which is the first thing that starts Bruce worried that uh, someone's out to get him. But he can't be worried at this point because he's only semi-conscious. He's badly broken at this stage. His, uh, like I said, his skull's fractured and he's almost in a coma. So Huntress gets him back to the Batcave and... Alfred's there and it cuts back to Alfred when he was a military doctor and it's, it's a really great moment because you're like yes actually it makes perfect sense that Alfred's able to put up with all of Bruce's crap and all of Bruce's coming back you know battered to all hell and being able to cope with that he's more than just a butler Giles in Buffy is about 80% Alfred to me 
Yeah, that's a that's a good way of putting it, actually. Hmm. Even whilst Batman's unconscious or Bruce is unconscious, whichever hmm. way you want to put it, he's still judging people and analysing stuff. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you through the inner monologue yeah, the inner monologue captions, you can just see Yeah, you know, he's you, still even if he's not state, he's still thinking things over, he's still yeah. the detective. He never stops working. And at this stage he actually starts tapping out in Morse code with his only, you know, movable limbs at this stage, his fingers, um, to Alfred to uh contact his old friend Thomas Elliot, who he hasn't seen in years, but happens to be one of the best surgeons in the country. Yeah. So uh, Tommy turns up and we get a flashback to when Bruce and Tommy were kids and how close they were uh, at roughly the same age that Bruce's parents died because Tommy's, uh, is it Tommy's father dies at the same time. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in a car crash. So they bond as kids. So Tommy comes in, saves Batman, stitches him back together, although they frame it up as a uh, Porsche crashed, and uh, Dick has to go out and, and smash up one of Bruce's cars just to explain why Bruce is so badly injured, which is a decent cover. Meantime, it turns out Poison Ivy has been controlling Catwoman, as we said earlier, and now turns her attention on Superman. Which is a great moment in the book, because at this point, when I was reading this, you know, round about the time it came, I think I had just... The graphic novels had just come out, and I was t- pretty much ordered by my comic book guy, you have to read this series. And I bought the first book, and then ran back to the store later that afternoon and said, second book, please! Because <laughs> it was originally published in two volumes. If you, I mean, most of you, you folks should be able to track down the single volume these days. Yeah, I've got it in two. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, you know, so Catwoman did things against her will, and you suddenly realise that Ivy's turned her attention to Superman. I'd never seen that kind of thing actually happen in the animated series. Never, I mean, I, the, in the Batman-Superman movie, I don't believe they actually clash. But the notion of I, Ivy actually controlling Superman... She, the way that Batman exploits it in the end is that, that Cal won't do anything. In fact, no one uh, being controlled by Ivy will do something that they actually can't do or have a moral objection to. So, Superman can't kill. It's very much like how hypnosis works. You can't make someone do something they'd never do. So, around about this time, Bruce just happens to visit Metropolis, and Superman starts trashing the joint and trying to find him and punch his lights out, um, being controlled by Ivy. And Jim Lee, for how well he draws Batman, Jim Lee draws Superman superbly. He draws him the best I have ever seen Superman. He's just like a giant carved yeah. statue. Very imposing. Mm. And it's the inking is fantastic. He's super bright and colourful. The S always seems to stand out along with the cape. Yeah. And because Ivy's controlling him, he's frowning, so he's got this kind of really purposeful... Kind of like Cal at the end of the first Superman, Richard Donner film, when Lois dies in the earthquake, when he goes... And turns the world around. Just that he's, he's got this purposeful look on his face. And I like the way they always remind you that he is being controlled by a where he's got the the ivy round his neck. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, Batman and Catwoman try desperately to get away from him, uh, go through the sewers. He smashes through the sewers. Batman retrieves the kryptonite ring and punches Superman's lights out, which is something to see. I, I will actually mention this as well. There's not... The, I could say there's not enough Superman in this book. It's kind of like... Uh, it's kind of like a, not only a rogues gallery, but a hero's gallery as well. Everyone sort of jumps in and does their bit. Yeah. Um, but whenever 
I've said this before, whenever Superman and Batman are in the same comet together, they both come alive in a, in a whole new way because of their diametrically opposed viewpoints on the world. I did like that bit, the bit in here where um, Batman's basically saying that the essential thing is, deep down, he's a good man. And I'm, and I'm not. not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I put here Jim Lee's depiction of men and women. As I said, the men all seem to be the sort of big carved statues. The women, I mean, at least he doesn't do them like super skinny. Like David Hartrick said earlier, Jim Lee was kind of the face of 90s comic books. And 90s comic books were not especially... um, PC. PC? I was going to say kind to women. I mean, they, they, they were empowered... Just tits. Gigantic, muscular women with enormous tits and enormous asses. Just colossal goddesses. And there was just book after book after book of by this supernaturally powered, scantily clad woman's adventures. We might get to an issue three. The Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld. Jeff Scott Campbell, Joe Madureira, Humberto Just about any of the image founders. Friggin' Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson, just gorgeous babes, left, right, and center. And it's, you know, to the point where if you show, like, a scantily clad babes these days, I immediately start thinking of 90s comics and thinking, there's no story here. There is nothing to read. It is just babes. Blog out there somewhere, uh, I'll try and fish out the address, um, that was basically just showing poses from comic books and how, the, how ridiculous they were. Mm. and anatomically impossible. Yeah. Um, to, to his credit, Jim Lee reigns it in more than his contemporaries, but he still does fall foul of, of the whole kind of sort of busty goddess thing. Mm. Two years before I read this, I started reading Vertigo stuff, where the uh, men and women are portrayed in a far more human and realistic way. And I originally thought that, say, the artwork by Glenn Fabry on Preacher looked ugly as all hell. Sorry, and Steve Dillon's art on that. And now it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful in how mundane everything looks. Mm-hmm. Um, I, just, I have to get over that hump of having, having to have everything gorgeous, you know? Because I've been raised on brain-dead crap. Flicking through the book here and I've just come across the I think it's one of the first flashbacks mm-hmm. the Metropolis one yep with Green Lantern and that's oh, yeah. stunning that, to look at it's like the Golden Age Alan Scott Green Lantern yeah because yeah. <laughs> he doesn't ju- he, it's got a painterly style to the flashbacks yeah. doesn't it and the kind of sepia toned apart from Green Lantern yeah and they make sure that Bruce looks like he did in year one as well he's got the same haircut and the same face yeah it's the way it's done, it's like showing what really stood out in that flashback for the mm. two kids. Just seeing the original Golden Age Green Lantern in all his glory. Versus Captain Cold or something. The icicle. <laughs> the icicle. <laughs> there are too many DC Cold-related villains. There's even a Young Justice episode where all the Cold-related villains try and break <laughs> out of prison at once. Because some idiot put them all in the same prison! <laughs> Hush, 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 here comes the boogeyman. Don't let him come too close to you, he'll catch you if he can. Just pretend that you're a crocodile, and you will find that boogeyman will run away a mile. When Hush appears in the comics, it is always as an anonymous male figure in a trench coat, his head swathed in bandages, his glowering eyes and permanently gritted Jim Lee teeth, the only things visible beneath the wrappings. 
the terrible beauty of the character is that he could be so many people that have it in for Batman or Bruce Wayne. The sense that he has thought of everything before Bruce and his ability to orchestrate truly shocking personal attacks makes for a memorable and frightening antagonist. For he will never guess that they are only made of lead. Say hush hush, you'll think that you're asleep. If you make a lovely snore away, he'll softly creep. Sing this tune, you children one and all. Bogeyman will run away, he'll think it's Henry Hall. <laughs> with Superman and Ivy dealt with oh we haven't even mentioned how they deal with Superman Catwoman throws Lois off a building which kind of snaps Snoop, Superman out of it and he's able to go oh, stop hitting Batman and go and save Lois which is kind of a gamble on Bruce's part yeah. but uh, neat way of doing it and that's, that's immediately then when Catwoman does a mid-air splits whilst standing on her head for no reason whilst talking to Bruce. Just going, look, check what I can do. Yeah, okay, very good. Uh, I refer you to what I originally said about Catwoman. I, I think, actually, this, this didn't bother me so much until I played and finished Arkham City, which adds, not only adds nothing to the Catwoman character, but in fact subtracts from the Catwoman character. More on that next week. With Superman and Ivy dealt with, Bruce goes to the opera Pagliacci with Tommy and Selina, aware that he is being stalked. I think at this point, doesn't Selina not know he's Batman? Because later on in the story, he actually show, takes off his cowl. And yeah, shows yeah. he knows so, that she's Catwoman, but not yeah, the other way around. She yeah. just knows it's Bruce Wayne. I see him all the time. Mm. Now, um, they've even referenced this in uh, the 40s comics, because uh, I think... It, it was in Legends of the Dark Knight. Pagliacci is a opera about a sad clown, and the sad clown and it bursts open to reveal Harley Quinn, expected by everyone apart from Batman. It would appear. <laughs> Every time I see the the word Pagliacci or however you say it, it sends me back to Watchmen. Watchmen, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Doctor, I am Pagliacci. Now I'm speaking like Batman. At least for <laughs> Batman, <laughs> everyone laughed. Ha ha. Um. Yeah, good old Rorschach. Okay, so Harley Quinn interrupts the opera, and Tommy is killed by the Joker. Batman then nearly murders his archenemy. So this is a huge sudden event. And it goes from being, hey, it's Harley Quinn. And remember, of course, that, uh, as we said earlier, she was in the animated series, and then they loved her so much they stuck her in the comics. So it's, you know, when you see her in the comics, she can't not talk in that Harley Quinn voice that Arlene Sorkin now... Uh, is it Tara Strong doing her now? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Harley Quinn steals Tommy's mother's necklace. Tommy gives chase. Bruce runs out into the alley after him, finds him shot dead, Joker standing over him with a smoking gun, claiming that he's innocent. And this is the thing that, that, uh, that tips him over the edge. He actually wants to kill Joker. And it actually, this is something I'm going to uh, reference back when, when we talk about Under the Red Hood, when we talk about the return of the Joker, and in reference to The Dark Knight Returns. There have been m- multiple times in his career when Batman has wanted to kill the Joker, specifically the Joker, and come this close. And this is one of the absolute closest times. You'll only ever see him ever get this close when it's against the Joker. Mm. End of story. You'll never see him even consider it with any other villain but with the Joker. Mm. Because he's done so many bad things to him personally. Mm. Because in his heart, Bruce knows that this man is utterly without redemption. That He's not going to stop. It's going to take the death of one of them to stop this happening. Because with most of Bruce's villains, all of them have some sort of tragic 
think he knows why they're doing this. As he's strangling the Joker, Batman flashes back to when the Joker shot Barbara in the spine, like we mentioned before, but also when he murdered the second Robin. Now, not many people know about Jason Todd outside of comic continuity, but he, there were, he was the one in between Dick Grayson, who's the one who turned up in the Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, the first Robin, who eventually became Nightwing, uh, and then there's the third Robin, Tim Drake, who's the much younger one, who uh, turned up in the fourth series of Batman the Animated Series. They just, they just completely went straight past this second one. So yeah, the second Robin, the Joker beat him half to death with a crowbar and then left him in a warehouse with a time bomb which exploded just before Bruce got there, killing him. And it's something that Batman has never been able to enact any sense of vengeance upon the Joker for. At this stage, when he's strangling him for the death of Tommy, it's everything comes crashing in on him at once. The All of these always... reasons to end this man's life. At Tommy's funeral, joined by Dick, Bruce theorizes that there is some mastermind behind these unlucky and tragic events. He's been thinking this for quite some time, but he starts to put his theories into shape here. His enemies are simply too far out of character. Shortly after that, he foils a lame jewel heist that the Riddler does, kind of like referencing Batman Forever in that it's a shitty jewel heist. In my notes, I just wrote down bad riddles again. Mm. <laughs> yeah. What has four wheels, flies, and costs a million dollars? A solid gold dump truck. Uh, but that leads to Talia al Ghul, uh, daughter of Raz al Ghul. Talia's always struck me as one of the creepiest Batman villains ever. She seems to be very much certain that uh, Batman loves her and that she is the love of his life. He seems kind of indifferent to her. He seems to think she's hot. That's about it. <laughs> there's not much, I mean, apart from the fact that she's very elegant and uh, very clever, there's not really much to talk about because she's semi-psychotic. Talia leads to Ras al Ghul, and this is where the, uh, the plot thickens, because it appears that the reason that Ras al Ghul is able to live, I think he's lived for like 600 years or something like that, he's able to rejuvenate himself every couple of decades with a Lazarus pit, uh, which uh, brings the body back to full function, and uh, the only payment, it would appear, is your sanity, because he is quite, quite mad. Uh, however, one of the things that apparently Lazarus Pits can do is cure terrible, terrible sickness and also um, bring you back from the dead. So Bruce starts to wonder about who's been tampering with this pit. There are several elements that um, probably lift out quite uh, easily in that you just take Huntress out and there's no real problem there. Take Lady Shiva out and there's no problem there. Take Scarecrow out and there's no problem there. However, the, the interesting thing is that when it comes to the crunch, so many of those characters have been placed in Batman's path as misdirection. And it is to prevent you, the reader, and Batman himself from focusing on what he should be. So while it seems to get a bit slapdash in the middle, it's, it's more a case of supreme misdirection. So I think it ties itself up expertly at the end. Returning to Gotham, Batman finds that Tim Drake, the third Robin, has been captured. Racing to the graveyard where Jason Todd was buried, there he finds Hush, 
unmasked and revealed as his. Spoilers, folks, you might want to turn off now. Long dead protege, Jason Todd. Now, this is where suddenly the rug gets pulled out because um, for folks who were unfamiliar with it, the seed was so expertly sown around about the time he was going to kill Joker because they just sort of told you, just, just happened to mention what happened to Batgirl. They just happened to mention as a mitigating circumstance of why Batman wanted to kill Joker what his relationship was to Jason Todd. So even though I'd never read Batman before, I went, ah, at this point. And, yeah, you've got a little sequence with all the other bits that point to Jason Todd as well. Yeah. He's, he's been putting it all together, and he's, he's worked out that the uh, coffin that he buried Jason in, was it empty, or was there a, a dummy in there? It varies depending on which version you're in, reading and watching. In this one, I think it's just it, empty. I don't think it matters at this point, does it? Because yeah. by the time he gets there, he's stood there. Hmm. Jason is there alive in the flesh and Batman and Jason fight and it's it's fascinating for Bruce because he's fighting someone who should never have reached this age or did never reach this age it feels unnatural to him and uh, there's so much emotional riding on, on this specific side of it uh, beforehand that there is a very creepy moment with the scarecrow leading him to Jason and uh, then at the end when he beats Jason after a lot of confusion and chaos it turns out that it was Clayface pretending to be Jason who then melts away so we're not going to tell you what happens in the 12th and final issue if you have not read Hush yet you are still listening to this point you're not going to get any more information out of us we are not going to tell you the final identity of Hush we are going to tell you to read this thing. It is fantastic. And while we have told you a lot of the plot, it does make for fascinating reading. And it's, it's kind of like a Batman 101, bringing you up to speed on everything you really need to know about the Dark Knight. To conclude the whole relationship with Catwoman thing, this one thing we will mention from uh, uh, the 12th issue, uh, when the whole thing is resolved, he goes to kiss her, and she, she whispers in his ear, hush, and he fiercely pushes her away and realizes that he can't trust her. And it comes to the point where she believes that she's prepared to be in a relationship with him, but he doesn't believe he's ready to be in a relationship with someone he doesn't trust. But he doesn't trust anyone. And this experience has made him even more paranoid. It's a fantastic character piece to look at Bruce and to look at Batman. I say to look at Bruce, ultimately when it comes down to it, Bruce is Batman. The mask that he wears is Bruce Wayne, the one that he presents to the world. Batman is who he is. That harder voice that Kevin Conroy uses, that is the real Bruce. It's the soft voice that he puts on to make himself more accessible to everyone. I'm sure that gets mentioned in, possibly in one of the Nolan movies. Yeah. Alfred saying that his voice is going more towards the, the Batman voice all the time. There was a follow-up named Heart of Hush written by Paul Dini, who may well be the writer who knows the characters the most, and I'm going to read that. And Hush himself features in a side plot 
on Batman Arkham City reviewing next week. Right, so we're going to leave it at that. Simply put, this is one of the most important Batman stories ever written. It's one of the most gorgeous to look at, and it's, it's a great refresher, it's a great introduction. I think we've sold it enough, frankly. We will be back in the next few days to talk about Year One, Under the Red Hood, and Batman Beyond, Return of the Joker. I'd like to thank Jerome McIntosh and Paul Gibson for being my guests tonight. No problem. Thank you. You've been listening to Digital Gonzo. See you soon. Many thanks again to David Hartrick for his Hush article, which you can read today in its entirety on Gonzo Planet. Deep the bullet lies